You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, alongside, as always, from USA Today and MMA Junkie, uh, your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Uh, ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Let me ask you this. We've been, it's been a couple weeks now since we had a, a UFC event. We're going to get, get that monkey off our back this weekend with UFC 179. Uh, I've been, I've seen this sentiment flying around a little bit. Have you missed it? Yeah. Hell yeah. I've missed it. Really? You sound like, like you haven't. I have not. I mean, I'm, I'm pleased that UFC 179 is this weekend because I'm looking forward to the Jose Aldo Chad Mendez rematch. I think that that will be an interesting fight. Rest of the card is kind of garbage aside from the appearance of Phil Davis. But, uh, I'm pleased that that fight's happening this weekend. But no, I, the last couple weeks, I really haven't given it a second thought. Well, I guess when I say that I've missed it, what I, when I'm thinking of it, I'm thinking of like a really good UFC card, like some of the ones we've seen recently, like UFC 178, for example. I'm not, when I think of it, I'm not thinking of like tough Brazil finale three, uh, from Belo Horizonte or something with a bunch of dudes I don't, I've never heard of. So that, that would be my one note on that. But yeah, you get through especially, uh, you know, a couple weekends, no MMA action, especially you're looking for something to write about. Man, somebody needs to hurry up and punch somebody else in the face, man. So from a professional standpoint, you would say that you've missed it. Uh, yeah, from both a professional and a I want to watch somebody punch each other in the face. Because you're hyped for Carlos Diego Ferreira against Benil Dariush. That one actually could be a pretty good fight. I have no idea who either of those yes, guys are. Do. Come on. Uh, ben, the music this week comes to us from the podcast-loving band The Dude Lords. Okay. Who wrote us this week to say we are a four-piece indie surf band from Long Beach and have been listening since the old website. Wow. So they got street cred right off the bat. Down since day one, basically. They didn't sign any of their names, just the Dude Lords. So we can only assume that they get together, all four of them in mass, to listen to the podcast every week. On some kind of palatial estate, I imagine, if you're Dude Lords, yes, right? And, th- and then jam out to some surf music. If you like their music, you can find it at the Dude Lords. Dot bandcamp.com. Obviously, we'll put a link to that up on comingevent.com when we, uh, when we get this episode posted. I feel like if the Dude Lords don't have t-shirts for sale, they probably should. Cause I, I can imagine. I would probably some... sport a Dude Lords t-shirt. Yeah. The music is good. I felt when I, you'll, you'll hear it when you listen to the show, but, but yeah, I liked it. Get on those t-shirts, Dude Lords. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast and round number one, you know, not to overstate things. But as the company's last Brazilian champion, it sort of feels like Jose Aldo has the hopes of an entire nation on his shoulders this weekend at UFC 179. A nation of hyped up, tattooed jujitsu black belts who are super sensitive to the concept of disrespect and whose idea of a good time for decades now has been going to the beach to fight random muscle men. You know, I'm sure it'll just turn out fine. I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah, it'll be all right. And in round number two, is this the end of the line for Phil Davis? And in round number three, at this point, even Lorenzo Fertitta is admitting that 2014 was pretty crappy for the UFC, but with some awesome fights already booked for January, does 2015 shape up as the most important year in UFC history? 
All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to do Master Tweet Theater and we're going to do Just Saying Stuff. But right now, like we always do about this time, we're going to do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Did you get a chance to look at these listener mail questions? Yes, Because I, I emailed you about them earlier and you never responded. I thought that my lack of response you would take as me saying, sure, fine, let's do those ones you suggested. Just like a quiet affirmative nod. Yeah, that's the way you should think of that. Well, you know, it's weird. That's how I usually think of it when I don't hear anything from you about other topics. So a lot of times I'll just say stuff out loud, like, should I eat the last Twinkie? And if I don't hear anything, I just imagine you sagely just nodding your head. Yeah, I don't want to embarrass us both by, like, having to shout across the room, do you eat that Twinkie, dog? <laughs> the first piece of listener mail this week comes from John Joe Carter. He writes, we could be set for a handbags at dawn showdown between Michael Bisping and Luke Rockhold before their November 8th bout if the trash talking and name calling continues at this pace. Are you fellows enjoying the build up to the fight or worried that it will fall off and turn into a lackluster affair that leaves both fighters looking bad as a result? I am unfamiliar with the term handbags at dawn. Damn it, I was just going to ask you about that. I was hoping you could explain it to me. I can't explain it, but I like it. It makes it sound like Michael Bisping and Luke Rockhold are elderly women who are going to meet in the street at sunrise and beat each other with their purses. Yeah, I, see, I like that as an image. That's what I thought, and I couldn't tell if it was just like a creative phrase on John Joe Carter's part or if he's from some place in the world where this is a commonly known phrase. Or maybe this um, or, is a phrase popular among millennials. It, it, maybe. Let's let's just ascribe everything to that, that it's these young whippersnapper kids. It is in we don't quotes. Understand. It has single quotes around it. Well, I will also, though, later and wonder, capitalized. is it supposed to be like a reference somehow to like Michael Bisping being like a pillow hands kind of dude? Because Luke Harkle does not really fit that mold. He can no. go out there and finish you. Um, I don't know. Maybe I spent way too much time today thinking about this. And it's just like it, 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 it makes it seem like a duel. Right? Yes. Like they're going to slap each other with gloves, except we're going with handbags. Right. Well, as to the actual question about am I concerned that the, the build up to this fight can't, can't sustain itself and then won't, you know, the fight itself won't deliver on it. That is the least of my concerns here. Yeah. It seems like these two, they're not really manufacturing this in any way. It also seems like everybody has figured out that Michael Bisping's like, angry British dude button is super easy to hit. He's a willing participant, you yes. might say. Yeah, always. Uh, and I think that everybody is hoping that, okay, you'll get him mad enough to do something stupid in the fight. And I can't say that I've really seen that, that part of it pay off for anybody. No, the only thing I can even remember is when he spit at Jorge Rivera's corner and then apparently didn't get his double secret backstage bonuses from the UFC, right? Also totally illegally need him in the head on purpose. Oh, that's right. Also that. Uh, but that, in fact, as and most, on, as most often does, just only benefited Michael Bisping. Yeah, right? that was, I think that was the, in, the incident that caused you to write your now famous always cheating him. It actually article. did. Yeah. Um, I am also not worried about this. Uh, the, the, I, I, I failed to separate this buildup from the buildup of a normal Michael Bisping fight. Like, I think that this always happens given that Michael Bisping, as we said, is a, is a willing participant in, in this trash talking. Uh, but I'm not worried about the fight itself, even though, like, Michael Bisping's thing is to kind of sucker people into these, uh, like, 15 or 25 minute almost track meet style fights where, where he punches them in the face a hundred times and, and they can't really get their offense off. Uh, I'm not worried about that here. I think Luke Rockhold is kind of too awesome for that. Yeah, me too. I think it's a tough, tough matchup for Bisping in a lot of ways. Cause yeah, I, I just don't see you being able to, 
to stand on the outside and, and outpoint Rockhold that way. I think, if anything, he would have a better chance of doing that to you if he wanted to. And it seems like Rockhold is uh, a little bit more of a complete fighter all around. And, and enormous. Also enormous. Yeah. Uh, and, and a surfer. Like, yes. And athlete. As and pointed surfer. out once by the, the guys who did the, uh, the promo spots for Psych, uh, Strike Force, surfer. That's right. Uh, yeah, Bisbeck's thing is kind of his, that he wants you to try to keep up with his pace and, uh, I just don't think Luke Rockhold's going to have a hard time with that. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it'll surprise me. Michael Bisping a lot of times does better than I think he's going to do in these fights, but I think you're right. That strikes me as a as a tough draw. It's a good fight, count. though. I'm looking forward to that one. Next question this week comes from Jeremy Talley. He writes, Anderson Silva recently came out with a bold one-and-done stance on PED abusers at the UFC level of combat sports. As a fighter who has faced more than one opponent who is attempting to game the system at the at Anderson's de- detriment, this actually says at the Anderson's detriment. You couldn't just let him slide on that, huh? You had to point it out. The spider's opinion seemed valid and, dare I say, sincere. Is there more? Yes. That's where mine ends. No, it says cut to... Why don't you take the rest of that? Cut to a few days later where Anderson is proclaiming that the young dino, Vitor Belfort, one of the more prevalent faces of the TRT golden era and known steroid cheat, was the most complete fighter in the middleweight division and that he would be rooting for his fellow countrymen to take the gold away from Chris Weidman. So, do we chalk this up to an oversight on Mr. Silva's logic or just more hapless toying with the media? It seems like such a bold stance on such an important subject to turn around within the week and totally abandon. Ben, Chad, anyone, what is this fuckery? You know, I like the way we did that. Kind of completely just inadvertently tag, tag teamed it. Yeah. Okay. Well, just like we drew it up on the chalkboard at halftime. This was, uh, I, I was also thinking about this because there's a few different ways to view this, right? One hand, you can just be like, okay, it's just internally inconsistent of you to say you want to see steroid sheets banned. To, and then to also, you know, be so pro Vitor, a guy who's been popped for steroids before and then was using TRT after that. Um, it seems like those two don't go together. The way I chose to see it, though, was fighters always have this weird thing when it comes to, like, comparing dudes they beat uh, and, like, dudes they've been beaten by who are going to fight each other. And it seems like, yeah, if you're Anderson, it might be a lot more comfortable to be like, oh, I think Vitor is awesome. Vitor is such a, it's a great fighter, and I think he's going to win that. Because you got to win over Vitor. So, right. yeah. you know, and it'd be better for you, right, if you do hope to get the middleweight title back. Like, wouldn't you rather... You know, the title be held by a guy you've already beaten and probably, I'm sure, believe you can beat again than by a guy who has two wins over you, the latter of which included you snapping your damn leg in half. Like, that's kind of how I saw it. That fi- all fighters kind of have that weird thing if you start asking them about, uh, guys that they've, they've fought before. Yeah. And it's, it would be like pretty obviously a kind of a backhanded compliment, you might say, right? For Anderson Silva to say Vitor Belfort is the most well-rounded middleweight in the 185-pound division. Oh, but also I defeated him via highlight reel kick in the face yeah. that will be on video game commercials for the rest of everyone's natural lives. So does that mean that I am in, in Well, you see, in you don't... You don't have, no, that's not for me to say. You, that's see, not for you me. don't have to say that part. You just let everyone <laughs> else for, fill that in. That's for everyone else to decide. Also, I thought that, these, that, that Vitor and Silva didn't really like each other. Yeah, no, not when they're fighting each other. But yeah. it's like, introduce... An American dude who has the title and seems like he could be better than both of them. And then, you know, the enemy of my enemy, Chad. Okay, right. So it's like when I used to work at the Greek restaurant in the Southgate Mall and the two Greek guys that I worked with hated all of the other Greek people in town. But if anybody else said something about the Greek people, they'd be like, what'd you say? 
Like they would get legitimately pissed about it. I think it. we can all agree that what this podcast needs is more stories about the time when you worked at the Euro place. I got some good ones. Uh, here's the two things that I thought about this. Number one, I don't think anyone would be particularly surprised if it turned out that Anderson Silva had some conflicting moralistic stances in his mind brain, right? I'm sure he's not the only one. I mean, it, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise anyone if maybe Anderson Silva was just kind of making it all up as he went. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, the thing about, uh, somebody asked me about the, the actual idea of the, right. the lifetime this ban. Is, this thing. is number two, which to me seems like it sounds good in theory. Right. Unless you happen to run the world's largest mixed martial arts promotion, in which case, think of all the dudes that you would have lost over the years if you had a no tolerance, one and done PEDs lifetime ban. Well, and I just don't think that it's an effective deterrent because I, I think that already the penalties, both like the actual physical penalties and the, the stain that it puts, uh, on your reputation are, are pretty severe, I think. Uh, already that should be a pretty strong deterrent and it's not because people don't think they're going to get caught. I think that's the big problem is that you, you just need, you know, better testing, more effective testing that's going to catch some of these people because it just, ramping up the the severity of the punishment it's not going to work on a guy who's pretty sure he's going to beat the test anyway all right well i want to get to david golden's email because it's long and uh we're probably going to talk about it for a few minutes so david golden writes this week on thursday news broke that war machine attempted suicide in his jail cell as i looked over twitter and message boards i was sad to see that some people were saying that it was too bad he lived you see, in a strange coincidence, just before the news broke, I found out that one of my good friends had committed suicide. My friend wasn't an angel, but it still hurts to have him gone. While War Machine's actions over the years have been anything but exemplary, it does not mean that he isn't someone's son, friend, or brother. This latest action only reinforces the, uh, the fact that War Machine needs help. For my friend, unfortunately, it's too late, but for War Machine, it isn't. I'm not saying that War Machine is a good dude because he isn't. His violent acts are deplorable and he deserves to be punished. However, suicide affects more than just the person who dies, and it's hard to explain if you haven't been through it yourself. I guess I just wanted to say, if you have a friend or family member that you fear is suicidal, please reach out to them. They may uh, push you away, but don't... they. They may push you away, but don't let them. You will regret it. Man, this is not really MMA related. Sorry, guys. I'm just bummed and I wanted to write. Uh, so obviously this brings up kind of a heavy topic, which yes, it does. feels hard on its face to crack jokes about and stuff like that, because obviously it's, it's, uh, it's super serious. This, this kind of thing. I had a friend commit suicide right after we, we got out of college and, and, uh, I was left feeling, I think much the same way that, that, that David Golden reports feeling, uh, in this, uh, in this letter, um, I guess I would also say, though, if you go to Twitter and message boards to look for responses, maybe not the best idea, you're probably going to get a lot of, a lot of bad responses. Um, and obviously, I guess this gets us into War Machine, uh, whose, but his suicide note was today published, uh, on a number of websites. Um, and and I think that David Golden obviously makes the the, the valid point here. Uh, it's it's sad and 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 horrible. Anyone anytime anybody tries to commit suicide, uh, including War Machine, even though uh, it seems like everything every new wrinkle that we find out about the guy uh, makes you question if whether he has any redeeming qualities. Because like kind of every layer of the onion that gets uh, peeled away reveals more. 
uh, ugliness kind yeah. of within within John Coppenhaver. Yeah, even the suicide note not terribly contrite about what he actually did, uh, which is the really weird part about it, I think. Because it's one thing, like, I mean, I don't know, maybe if you were looking at it as far as some, like, Japanese samurai, I have shamed myself, uh, and I feel that the only redeeming way out of this is suicide and some kind of, like, you know, old-school Roman value or something. I don't know. That would be weird and, and, like, difficult for us to understand in our modern society, but it that would be something, at least. Um, and instead, it just seemed like angry that that this had gone against him that angry that that he was going to be punished so severely for this yeah it's it's very strange almost from start to finish there are a lot of different uh little nods in there uh he forgives her yeah he does in fact forgive christy mack at one point i mean the very first or second line is something about how he refuses to live off taxpayer dollars in prison or something like that which like as soon as you read that it kind of clues you into a much larger uh and and much stranger uh like personal ideology right well he starts off with a nietzsche quote ends with a nietzsche quote uh and then get, gets into a lot of passive voice writing about uh, uh you know crimes that he, he pretty much admits to have committed uh, so it's very weird. It's a very weird thing all the way around. Not a day goes by that I don't wish that you weren't hurt that night. I hope you know that, he writes to Chris, Christy Mack. Weren't hurt by me is the unstated part of that passive uh, voice sentence. Yeah, uh, but I guess to circle back to the original question still would be, I guess, another sad happening in a long line of of sad happenings in involving war machine if if he did in fact kill himself in his jail cell right yeah yeah no i mean there's there's no good element about this for anybody like the entire thing is just sad and just keeps on getting sadder um yeah i don't know what to say about this and this also though reminds me i was reading cage potato i think last week and they were pointing out how uh you know, Christy Mack had gotten on the UG and posted these like, oh, here's my status, here's how I'm healing now, and here's still what I have to do. And, you know, it's a pretty involved process. It's not right, like, you yeah. know, she's just waiting for some swelling to go down. Like, she has surgeries uh, and more surgeries in front of her and, and, and some serious, serious stuff. And the response from the UG, like we we're saying about maybe you don't want to go to message boards and Twitter to look for uh, thoughtful analysis of this stuff is just a bunch of stuff about like, oh, haha, she did porn. Um, which, I mean, A, I'm willing to bet that a lot of the uh, members of the UG forum are avid enthusiasts of porn and avid consumers of it. Uh, and so you should probably not be a total jerk to the people who make this stuff that you enjoy. Um, but B, damn, man, you don't realize that maybe that's not the time for your, you to, to bring out your your best slut shaming moves uh, when she's posting about how she's finally healing up from like a near like life ending assault. Yeah. You know, baffling uh, to me, I feel like I really support and am glad that she actually posts those updates though, because, you know, even in a high profile assault case like this, I feel like 
we as the general public and or the media would have a tendency to move on from it and not yes. necessarily move on, but even like think in your mind, like if she hadn't posted these updates, I think my inclination and a lot of people's inclination would, would be to, to like have a tendency to think, well, I'm sure she's okay now. Like she's probably healed up by now yeah. and is like moving on with her life. And so I'm glad that she posts those updates just to reinforce the idea of like how badly injured she was and like what a calamity these kinds of assaults like present in people's lives because otherwise I think we would just kind of move on. And so to me, it's a positive thing for her to keep reminding us all that like for her, this thing is like very much still uh, like a process of healing and she's still very much in the middle of it. Well, and it's kind of like, it reminds you of that, uh, the Ray Rice elevator footage where, you know, why was it such an outrage once people actually saw it as opposed to when they, you know, heard that exactly what happened happened? I mean, you would think that, like, why do we need to see that to realize how ugly and awful it is uh, for, you know, this huge man to to hit his wife? And yet that somehow we do. We do seem to need to see that. And I think you're right that her detailing this kind of process and, and showing us a step-by-step improvement really does show you, like, yeah, no, this isn't like, you know, you got a black eye and you're waiting for it to heal. Like this is like serious life altering stuff. Uh, and, and you're right. That is good that, I mean, I don't know if that's her intention uh, in doing that, but it, it is good if that, if it has that effect, even on a few people. All right, let's do one more quickly. This one comes from John Valencia. He writes, I think you've taken a somewhat similar question before, but say you knew a guy early thirties, married, no kids, good freelance job in good shape, Trains at a small MMA gym, longtime martial artist, but still relatively new to jujitsu and grappling, who was toying with the idea of competing in a few amateur MMA and or kickboxing fights just to test himself and see where he stands, but has no aspirations to turn pro. See, MMA is one of, quote-unquote, this guy's passions, and he loves training and watching, but his problem with the whole idea is the possibility of getting seriously hurt for little or no money. He knows the mid-level pros don't even get paid very well for something that requires so much skill and hard work, but still, he would like to get in the cage to see how it goes, yay or nay. You say yay. I think this guy should go for it. I think John Valencia should tell his friend to go ahead and go for it. Juan Valencia, let's call him. <laughs> I, I would say yay too, but I think it, as always, you got to kind of weigh, uh, like how well you think you would do for starters and also like how much you value the things that you would have at least the possibility of losing by taking, taking the fight. Uh, like if the only thing you can do is in your life is think, think about stuff, think clearly, then I would g- like, be given some pause yeah but going out there to do the damn thing you go out there and have one mma fight i don't think you're looking at well no probably CTE, not although that know? that although the, the possibility exists if something really really bad happened to you like slim yeah. chance for sure but it's the same thing like if you are an artist like and you like do sculpture or draw for a living Maybe not a great idea to put put your hands in them MMA gloves and go bounce them off other people's foreheads. Like I'm just saying, like if you depends on what your good freelance job is. Like, yeah, I take guess some so. time to think about what the worst that could happen. I would also say that I think the depending on who you get matched up against, the odds of getting really badly seriously hurt in an amateur MMA fight, I don't think would be that great. Especially, I mean, if you know what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you if you 
uh, figure to be the more skilled guy in the fight, then I think that that's a very good possibility. Or if you're just However, enough. I have also been to independent local MMA shows where I saw a referee in a Gracie Baja Jiu Jitsu long sleeve t-shirt almost let a guy get choked to death. <laughs> Okay. All right. I'm not saying, I mean, there, there is that flip side of amateur MMA that the regulation might not be as tight. And so you might have some stuff to worry about there. But if what I'm, you know, reading into John Valencia's email about this guy is correct, it sounds like he's a little more comfortable with the stand up stuff and like his ground game is still a work in progress, which I don't know. I mean, that's not such a bad combination. It means you can probably hold your own on the feet. And if some dude, you know, you get some college wrestler or some jujitsu dude who comes in there and takes you down and, and puts you in an arm bar or something, then you tap out. And, you know, it, it's, it's a bruise to the ego, but not a whole lot else other than that. I mean, I, I just think that, uh, you know, if you're going to do it at that level and if you're going to do the right things to train beforehand and if you know that you have, like, whoever's doing this local promotion is not just going to feed you to somebody who's going to murder you. Uh, like if you can have that reasonable amount of trust in that, then sure, I say go for it. Just hope you don't show up to be the, the unlucky bastard who fights John Jones in his first professional MMA fight, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you do an amateur fight, then maybe at least you can avoid these dudes who are, uh, you know, just going straight to the pros. Hopefully. And I would hope that if Juan Valencia decides to go through with this, maybe he could uh, write the CME and let us know how it goes. Yeah. Maybe even uh, get somebody to shoot a little video of it. Send it our way. We'll put it on the website. Who knows? Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do that. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That will put you in touch with us. While you're there, you might as well sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning in a, in a humorous way, we hope. Uh, we'll catch you up with all of the news and notes in the MMA world that we miss between podcasts from Monday to Monday. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Right, ben well it has been a little bit shy of what three years since chad mendez and jose aldo fought for the first time back at ufc 142 in rio de janeiro brazil uh that first go round uh jose aldo ended up knocking out chad mendez with one second left in the first round uh, after what has been written and, and studied over one of the more egregious cage grabs, uh, that, that we can remember, uh, in, in at least big fight history. Uh, since then, Aldo has piled up three more wins, including one over Frankie Edgar, uh, but he hasn't fought since February. Uh, in an odd twist in a Jose Aldo fight, perhaps. He's actually been a little bit more active than Chad Mendez here, who uh, has not fought since last December when he whooped up on Nick Lentz via unanimous decision. Ben, has anything or enough changed in this fight to make you think that Chad Mendez will go out there and overcome what appear to be eh, about two to one underdog odds? You know, I was thinking about this very question today when I went back and watched via the the fight pass, the UFC fight pass dot com, uh, the first fight, and. I gotta say, 
may, you know, my memory was, uh, I think, a little bit affected, perhaps, by that cage grab. I guess I remembered it more as like, man, if, like, Mendez was on the verge of getting that fight to the ground and that cage grab stopped it and then right away turned around and knocked him out. And that's not really exactly how it happened. Mendez had tried like three takedowns unsuccessfully at that point. And by, by the way, though, tried them all pretty much out in the open space of the cage as, and I don't know, I know you've talked before to, to Reed Kuhn, the, the statistician about, uh, different stuff like that, but he, uh, has crunched the data over time and tells you that when wrestlers try those takedowns out in the open space, um, their takedown percentage goes way, way down. And it seemed like when I was watching it again, man, Chad Mendez just feels like he has to get this fight to the floor at all costs as quickly as possible. And he was just getting shrugged off on those takedown attempts. And finally, he gets a kind of a back body lock position, uh, tries to lift Jose Aldo up and slam him once, doesn't really work, tries it again. Aldo grabs the fence just obviously to stop it, uh, gets warned. Then, you know, when he's kind of still in the process of being warned, Mendez is able to actually use that same position and get him down, and Aldo pops right back up and then pretty quickly breaks his grip and turns around, and because of Mendez's just absolute need to get that takedown, manages to land that knee on him as he's shooting in. And it made me wonder, you know, Mendez, it seems like he's become a more well-rounded fighter since then, definitely a more dangerous fighter. He's finishing a lot more people. His stand-up seems like it's gotten better and, like, he believes in it a little more. Uh, but it also makes you wonder... You know, has the stand-up gotten so good that he's going to beat Jose Aldo in a kickboxing match? I don't think so. I mean, I think the best thing he can hope for here is that his stand- he believes in his stand-up enough that he will not be quite so uh, eager and desperate for the takedown, and that maybe that'll make a difference. Yeah, see, I'm going to have to go back and watch this one again myself because I, I watched it not too long ago, but several months ago, and, and I feel like I came away from the fight feeling like Mendez afforded himself really well during the first round, but then during our discussion right before we went on the air here, it seemed like you didn't really agree with that. It, you felt like maybe he got worked a little bit more than, than I remembered that he uh, did. He didn't do badly, but, I mean, nobody did a whole hell of a lot in that first round. You know, Aldo landed a couple of good leg kicks. Uh, but Mendez just kept trying for a takedown, and a couple times it looked like he was getting in there deep enough on it where you thought he'd be able to finish it, and he just wasn't. Uh, and then, you know, the last minute and a half, two minutes is them kind of clinched up against the fence there with Mendez in, on his back, uh, trying to do something with it. So, I mean, it's tough to say who won that first round because not a whole lot happened there. But, it, you know, you just, it makes you wonder, uh, if he had a different game plan, and if he felt like he had more options, um, that would afford him a different game plan, would it be a different fight? Because the thing we always hear about Jose Aldo, right, is like, hey, he gets tired. He, he has a big weight cut. He, he gets tired. We've seen him sometimes late in fights look like he kind of just takes his foot off the gas and is going to cruise, just cruise, just cruise to the finish line. Uh, and so it seems like people have decided that's the way to get him, right, is to get him late. Uh, but then you've got to be the one to tire him out. You can't just like hang around and hope that he's going to get tired on his own. Yeah. Um, and like I said at the top of the show, this is a fight I'm pretty excited for because I do feel like – uh, if, if there's a guy in the division who can come along and maybe give Jose Aldo a run for his money, it would be a guy like Chad Mendez, who obviously has really good grappling skills. And frankly, in his last four or five appearances has just looked like a fucking dynamo, frankly, yeah. before he went to decision with Nick Lancey, put together four or five, or I think four, uh, KO, TKO stoppages. Didn't he have right a row or something with that Nick Lance fight? Is that true? That could be something. I don't know. Sinus infection. Sure, why not? Dang fever. Yeah, imagine what Nick Lentz must have come down with in order to lose that fight. Probably 104 <laughs> degree fever before, as he took the cage. I think he was a Ebola patient zero, actually. But the uh, the Jose Aldo fight, the first Jose Aldo fight also went down pre-Bang Ludwig, right? Before he came in to Team Alpha Male uh, and, and kind of 
Uh, we all know kind of revamped their striking game and, and then TJ Dillashaw went out and surprised Henan Burrow. So I'd like to think that Chad Mendez is, you know, at least going to make a run, run at it and, and, and do well. Uh, so that, that is a fight that I'm kind of excited in watching. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Jose Aldo though, who, as you know, has kind of been, uh, slowed by injuries throughout his UFC career and hasn't quite been as dynamic or, you know, the, the human highlight reel that he was back in his WEC days. Uh, his last two fights against Ricardo Lamas and Chan Sung Jung, like it kind of felt like, uh, well, now they're just, they're scrounging around for guys to, to come in and fight Aldo. Uh, but at this point, the featherweight division has, has kind of seen a rebound, right? Like, yeah. like it's as interesting right now as it's, as it's ever been. And I kind of feel like, uh, you know, if, if Jose Aldo is able to get past Chad Mendez, then maybe he has the opportunity to like kindly, kind of finally, finally seize the baton and run with it because, you know, he's got the, the, the option of having several really good fights right in a row. You know, he could get the Cub Swanson, Frankie Edgar winner, Connor McGregor still running around out there. So it feels like there are some real contenders right now at featherweight. And if Jose Aldo goes out there and, 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 you know, does it again against Chad Mendez and then can look really good in these upcoming fights, does like, does he have the chance to, become the guy that we thought he was going to be years and years ago. You know, I was thinking about this, especially because uh, I'm, I don't know if you saw Chad Mendez's criticism of Jose Aldo and him not doing enough media wise, uh, that he doesn't I heard about it. He, he doesn't do enough to promote the fights. He doesn't carry his weight there. And that, especially as the champion, that's part of the job. And that is something that, that you are obligated to do. And it also made you think about how, and wasn't he also complaining about not being paid enough fairly recently? Like, and when you think about it, I, I gotta admit that Mendez kinda has a point there. Like, Aldo, as good as he has been as a fighter, doesn't really seem to do that other part of the job very willingly or, you know, very well. And so it makes you wonder, like, can he be that guy, the dude who doesn't really, you know, do much to, to go out of his way in interviews to be interesting or, uh, magnetic or anything? Can he just rely on just a fighting ability and still be the champion that that division needs at a time when, as you pointed out, it's it's more interesting than it's ever been? I mean, it almost makes you wish that either he would kind of step up his game in, in that regard or go back to being the dude who's knocking people out with double flying knees. Right. Um, because in order to be the guy who's kind of fighting like he mostly just doesn't want to lose the title, like he feels like it's something that he knows you have to come and take from him uh, – and to also be the guy who's not really getting out there and selling it and being the face of the division, I feel like you you can't do both of those, especially if you want to get paid. Yeah, and I think I've said it before. I'm sure I've said it before on the show, but coming out of the WEC, I I really thought Jose Aldo had a chance to be a huge superstar, like almost be sort of a Manny Pacquiao of MMA type figure in terms of like bringing eyeballs to those lower weight classes, the the 145 pound weight class, just because he was doing such amazing things and tearing everybody up so badly in the WEC. He had that the uh, the highlight against in his first fight with Cub Swanson where he knocks him out with with the double flying knee that. You almost got to watch it in slow motion uh, to make sure that he did what you think that he just did. Uh, but then he comes into the UFC and is, like I said, been hampered by injury. And, and you're right, really does. It really does feel like he's changed his fighting style. And wow, he looks really, really technically flawless against a lot of these guys in, in his stand up game. Uh, you know, to see him go out and fight a guy like Ricardo Lamas in his last fight, who I think, you know, by the time it was over, we all kind of thought, well, this is the kind of guy that Jose Aldo should stop. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and it was just more like Aldo was out there kind of, you know, grinding out another decision instead of, uh, being the ferocious, uh, finisher that he had been when he was featherweight champion in the WEC. Yeah. Kind of getting a lead on the scorecards, it seemed like, and then running out the clock there at the end. And yeah, the, I mean, I feel like, you know, on one hand, you, you hate to criticize a dude who is at the, the very top of the division there and nobody can really do a whole lot to him. So obviously he's really, really good. You kind of feel, like a spoiled brat to sit there and be like, oh, but why doesn't he finish somebody or talk some shit beforehand? You know, God, why does he have to do everything? Why can't it just be good enough for him to be beating everybody? But then at the same time, I mean, like when Chad Mendez says that stuff, like, hey, if you're the champion, this is part of the thing is to get people to come out here and watch you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like he's right about that. I mean, that's something we can pretend all we want that MMA, like, hey, this is a sport. It's a real sport. God damn it. People don't need to get out there and do these theatrics and, and sell themselves. You know, the Peyton Manning doesn't have to sell himself. Why does a fighter have to? Well, let's just finally admit that it's not like those other sports. I mean, it's a little bit, a little bit more of a carnival element to it. Uh, you know, you, you do have to get out there and convince people and give them something to kind of sink their teeth into. Uh, in order to care about why these two dudes are going to get in a cage and fight each other on Saturday night. Yeah, and right now would be a good time for whoever comes out of UFC 179 with the belt to kind of turn it on because whoever it is is going to get themselves into a couple, two, three uh, really high-profile fights right in a row like we talked about, maybe taking on Frankie Edgar or Cub Swanson, uh, maybe Conor McGregor proves himself ready, and then, you know, you still got Dennis Bermudez out there running around with like 8,000 wins in a row. Yeah, do uh, not overlook Dennis Bermudez. So that guy's going to get himself into a title shot sooner rather than later, so it will be interesting to see what happens. Uh, but as for right now, Sir Nigel Longstock is here. He's going to come in and take my chair, uh, and we're going to play a little Master Tweet Theater. That starts right now. It's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am famous like Amos. Amos who? Well, that's first of all, that's Amos with an M. I am still not as famous as the other one. Okay. Well, you work on that. Uh, for those of you who don't know how this works, Sir Nigel is going to read us off some tweets from some people in the MMA sphere, and Chad and I are going to try and guess who those tweeters are. Is there a theme this week? Yes, sir, there is. The theme is, what did you do this weekend? Okay, so the theme is a question. Mm, yes. I yes. like that. A Let's question see. we will gradually answer. <laughs> Tweets! We'll see about that. Mm. Tweet the first. Let us begin. <clears throat> These howlies are headed back to the mainland. Frowny face. <laughs> and then a photograph of two people on a plane. Uh, okay, uh... Do the the people in the photograph, do they indeed look like Howleys? They are definitely Howleys, Okay. They have the khaki hats and everything. Okay. So, Chad, who went to Hawaii recently? Yeah, someone on vacation, right? Or on a business trip. Let's say vacation. I'm going to say TJ Dillashaw. I don't know why I think this, but I'm going to say Misha Tate, because I feel like Misha Tate and Brian Caraway went to Hawaii. That, that seems like something they would do. Both fine guesses, both grounded in what sound like fun trips, and both wrong. It is Nick Newell. Oh, what? man. Nick Newell? Nick Newell of the MMA World Series promotion, I believe. 
Yeah, I mean, you're close. You're close enough there. Is it World Series of Fighting? Yes, it is. Huh, yes, it's it interesting. Is. His bio says MMA World Series. And I was like, oh, I haven't heard of that because I'm ignorant. Well, maybe he figured if you weren't a total noob, you'd be able to figure it out. I guess so. I'm not a Monster Nick Newell fan. I mean, I am now. <laughs> if he's accepting more howlies. <clears throat> Tweet the second. Revolution by Hammerfall. I did some group vocals with them for this album, so it's got pieces of redacted inside. Okay, I don't know what Revolution by Hammerfall is, but it sounds like some heavy metal bullshit that Josh Barnett would be into, so that's what I'm going to say. I'm still kind of reeling from the idea that now I'm supposed to know what Nick Newell is tweeting about. Uh, Yeah, you're right, that's Josh Barnett. It is! It is Josh Barnett on some heavy metal bullshit! Did you do any investigation into what exactly he's talking about here? Because it all just sounds like just meaningless words to me. Well, it wasn't Magic the Gathering, so I assumed it was death metal. Okay. Fair enough. Tweet the third. Time for some decaf root beer flavored tea before bed. Enjoyed some Bellator MMA fights tonight and watched my teammates win at Tough Enough. What was the first part again about the beverage? (laughs) Time for some decaf root beer flavored tea before bed. Chad, you got any guesses there? Well, Tough Enough is the local Vegas promotion, right? That's right. So... I would think maybe someone who makes their home in Vegas or at least in the region. And someone who would, what was it, decaffeinated root beer flavored tea? Yeah. Yeah, that's the part that gets me right there. I assume he has a UTI. Well, I just said he. So um, this kind of seems like maybe a Randy Couture slash Rich Franklin type tweet. Does it? I'm going to go Randy Couture here. Although I don't know that he would still have teammates. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, that's the part. Um... I, I, too, was trying to think of who we might be talking about in the Vegas local scene. I was going to say Misha Tate, and then Sir Nigel kind of gave it away there that it was a dude. So I'm just going to go on the flip side there and say Brian Caraway. Both fine guesses, both males, and both wrong. It is John Alessio. How the fuck do you know what John Alessio is tweeting about? You're not following John Alessio on Twitter, are you? I am so, sir. Chad, is it possible that Sir Nigel's kind of upped his game here? This is bullshit. That's all I know. John Alessio. Come on. Sir Nigel's game is incredible. I'm on some 1990s Alexi Lawless shit. <laughs> Come on. You don't even understand that reference. He had a pretty good game in the 90s. I believe it was basketball. <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. Both Mayhem and War Machine lived with me at times and were my guys. Well, I think, think we all know that one. That's the poet Philip Brony getting a little sad. Yep. That's the uh, NYBA right there. Do you think when he's tweeting that they were both his guys, is he is he blaming himself here? Well, I hope not. He got he did get personally mentioned in the War Machine suicide note, so I hope that he knows that that it's all cool and and John Coppenhaver hopes that he he lives the rest of his life life with John Coppenhaver's strength. Right? Isn't that what it said? Something like that? <laughs> or maybe even more than that, one might hope. I'm just saying, this is not your fault, Phil. It's not your fault. It is, though, the poet Philip Baroni remembering about a time when he used to be friends with alleged felons. Alleged. Good luck, Mayhem. Not your fault, Phil. Go to hell, other guy. Tweet the fifth. Pretty deep. If the whole world was blind, how many people would you impress? What? Yes. If the whole world... Well, first of all, pretty deep. If the whole world was blind, how many people would you impress? Now... Is there anything about the layout of this tweet that suggests that 
the pretty deep is the tweeter's own words and that this is a, a quote of some kind? Yes. In fact, it is pretty deep colon retweet if uh, the world was blind. How many people would you impress? You see what you have to do sometimes to get Sir Nigel to just tell you what the hell is actually going on? I assumed you could read that colon from tone of voice, Sax. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say the other Randy Couture, Rich Franklin. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That really sounds like something Rich Franklin would tweet. Uh, Rich Franklin. It is. It is <laughs> Rich Franklin tweeting like the coffee mug that he is. Well, I feel like even though Sir Nigel kind of tried to screw us here, Chad, we had a pretty strong showing, actually. Yeah, we got the we got the gimmies, I think you would say, and then the just complete out of left field weirdo ones. We're just we're not going to get those probably ever. Yeah. At least he's keeping us on our toes. Sir Nigel, uh, what else you got going on this week? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished shooting an exciting project about a dystopian future where orphans are made to wear clown makeup, perform music all night, and party every day. I see. And what is it called? It's called Detroit Rock City of Lost Children. And what role do you play? I play a child, sir. Well, that's believable. That was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Well, Chad, not to be overlooked here at UFC 179, Phil Davis is going back to Rio again, as has been his habit every other fight uh, for the last couple of years in the UFC. This time, he's going to take on recent title challenger Glover Teixeira. Uh, and, you know, it's Phil Davis's first fight since that loss to Anthony Johnson, in which he kind of got owned there, uh, fighting against another guy who seemed like... Uh, competing for ownership of the top contender spot in the light heavyweight division. Now he has to fight a guy who just came off getting owned by John Jones. Kind of seems like a must-win crept up out of nowhere on old Phil Davis here, doesn't it? Boy, it sure does, but it doesn't feel like it was that long ago when we thought Phil Davis was the young upstart who, uh, you know, while still very much a, a work in progress, looked like the kind of guy uh, who might be able to unseat John Jones as champion when you just considered his physical size and his ability and his solid wrestling base. Uh, but now all of a sudden you turn around and he's 30 years old. Uh, and Where did the years go? He's coming off that loss to Anthony Johnson, like you said. Uh, and, and hasn't ever really developed into the dynamo that, that we had hoped that he would. And, you know, coming up against a guy like Glover Tashira, I, I feel like, uh, there's not going to be a lot of gray area in this one in, in, in terms of like how we look at Phil Davis after it. If you beat Glover Tashira, maybe it still seems like you can be a contender. Uh, and if you don't, I feel like that's real bad for you. Yeah. If you're Phil Davis, I feel like that's the point where maybe you get, uh, you know, remanded into full-time gatekeeper status or, or, uh, you know, released. I mean, they probably wouldn't release a guy at this point, but, but like, he doesn't seem like he's necessarily one of the UFC's favorite people in the world some of the time. Uh, and so, you know, anything's possible. You, you put two losses together in a row. Yeah, and maybe you get on the phone and ask World Series of Fighting if they're in the market for a light heavyweight. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be that hard to imagine, especially because you go back and you look at, at his recent fights, and it's not just the loss to Anthony Johnson. I mean, he got that decision win over Leota Machida, right? But 
you know, that was a close one. Uh, there were a lot of people who felt like he maybe didn't deserve to win that decision. Uh, and then, by the way, you know, Leota Machida, basically a middleweight, so you, that one doesn't look super great for you either. Uh, then he had that one, the decision over Vinny Magalhaes, where, you know, he kind of just made it clear that he could win without taking a whole lot of risks, and that's what he did. Uh, and then he had the two fights against uh, Wagner Prado, where, you know, one was a, a no contest where he wasn't doing terribly well, and then he, he came out the second time and choked him out. And so, you know, if you're looking at his career right now, you kind of have to say the high watermark is that decision win over Little Nog, wouldn't you? Which, if that's, you know, if you get to the point where you're 30, you've got uh, a bunch of fights in the UFC, you were going to be the the next John Jones, maybe the next light heavyweight contender, and the the best point you have is a decision win over Little Nog, that seems like uh, underperforming expectations there. Yeah, well, and keep in mind that right before he beat Roger Nog, like he had choked out Alexander Gustafson back at UFC 112 and then had beat Tim Boach with that weird kind of made up submission, like that he said was one of the things that he always used to catch in practice, but like, uh, was as far as we knew, you know, like a submission sort of of his own design or at least a submission that, that he was the first guy we'd really seen pull off in MMA. And so at that point, yeah, I think everybody was like, wow, you know, Phil Davis, like if, I guess if he keeps accelerating, learning at this rate, he's going to be, he's going to be really, really good. But it just, it does feel like he plateaued somewhere around in there during that, you know, after that loss to Rashad Evans and then getting into the, uh, you know, Wagner Prado, uh, not necessarily debacle, but kind of like slowed his momentum and then has never really put it back together. And like we said at the top, kind of got his doors blown off by Anthony Johnson in a fight where one guy came out looking like the 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 next big contender at the time uh and the other guy didn't. I was a little bit surprised to find out that Phil Davis is almost a 3 to 1 underdog here against yeah. Anthony Tashira. I was really surprised that I mean I guess it, it depends uh how you think this fight goes, right? Because the thing we know about Glover Teixeira, right, is that he has good boxing. He can stand there and he can knock you out, especially if you're getting in there in that close boxing range with him. It could be a really bad night for you. And so you got to think Phil Davis's plan is going to be takedowns and top control. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that could be tougher than uh, than maybe he thinks it is against a guy like Teixeira. And when you actually think about it, if this is a like, must-win fight that crept up out of nowhere – you got to go down there, the Rio, and fight a guy like Glover Teixeira. That's kind of a tough assignment, man. Sitting in the damn middle seat too today, according to <laughs> Phil Davis's Twitter. Now that ain't right. Yeah, I mean, can you believe that they're making six foot four, or I guess he's six two, six. I thought he was taller than that. Six foot two, Phil Davis squeeze into a middle seat to fly down there to Rio to fight Glover Teixeira on on what we expect will be uh, hostile territory. You couldn't at least get him like the little upgrade on United where you get like the little like four inches of extra leg room. Economy business class or whatever it's Your called. Your own TV and stuff. Come on, man. Uh, well, and let's talk a little bit about Teixeira too before we move off this fight. Like this feels to me like, uh, you know, like kind of a good a barometer for, for Glover Teixeira, a litmus test, if you will, because he had won so many fights in a row uh, leading up to that John Jones fight, uh, but at the same time beating kind of middling contenders like Ryan Bader and James Tahuna and the ghost of Quentin Rampage Jackson. Uh, and then of course he gets, he gets obliterated by John Jones at UFC 172. Not necessarily any shame in that because no. that's sort of what happens to everybody so far. And he proved his toughness in that one, I think, if nothing else. Uh, I mean, cause John Jones put it on him there a few times and he could just see 
It, it seemed almost as if John Jones was at, at a couple times cranked up the volume there to see what would happen and then saw, well, this guy isn't going away very easily, so let's not be stupid and let's go ahead and take the easy win that we've already kind of earned. Uh, but, I mean, it, that seems like one of those fights where either you come out of it thinking like, well, I proved to myself that I can take an ass kicking when I have to and still be in it, or you come out of there with your confidence completely shattered. Yeah, and doesn't necessarily tell us that much about Glover DeHeer, except for the fact that he did kind of take prove his toughness, like you said, taking taking what was a fairly solid ass kicking. Uh, but now comes back against Phil Davis, and I guess maybe we get to find out uh, a little bit more about Glover DeHeer because Phil Davis, while in kind of a slump, is still a uh, a legitimate guy and, and a guy who could be a contender if he comes out of this fight with, with a really good win. So I don't know, man. Maybe we'll find out um, if Glover Toshira still appears to be one of the best 205-pounders in the world during this fight. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, and it does, it is one of those fights where you wonder, like, okay, is it, are we just going to see here who does not have to uh, worry about what his immediate future holds? Because it's like, you know, both those guys seem like they wouldn't really be a, a matchup for John Jones right now, and he's got a lot of interesting options. So you can kind of take that contender idea and put it on the shelf for a little while if you're either one of these. So, you know, if you're, if you're Glover Teixeira and you come out with a win, it means you're still in the game. And it kind of means the same thing for Phil Davis. It's if you lose that you have to kind of start looking at uh, a guy who's getting on the wrong side of 30 there. I mean, Teixeira's 34, I believe. Uh, and the the prospects ahead are dimming. And we've seen that kind of thing with the UFC lately where, especially if you've been in the UFC long enough that your your pay has gone up, uh, you've won enough fights that, you know, you hit those kind of contract points. And then when they see, okay, we've seen what this guy has, he's not going to be a champion, and he's not a super uh, popular guy who's going to fill the seats reliably, then that's when they start to do the math on you and figure out maybe you'd be better off in the World Series of Fighting. Yeah, and maybe the saving grace of both these guys will be that the light heavyweight division is still not particularly uh deep. It's still robust. a fairly shallow and yeah, whatever the opposite of robust is. Uh but I don't know, man, if you're the loser of this fight, I guess you start talking shit about Dan Henderson or Shogun Hua and there the you go. come to the post fight press conference and say mean stuff about Fabio Maldonado's mom, maybe. I don't know. I can just imagine the hurt look on Fabio Maldonado's face. <laughs> yeah. Why you do that? I hope we're not jumping to conclusions here that Fabio Maldonado is going to get past Hans Stringer. Um, anyway, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number three for this week. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me about? Well, Chad, I don't know if you saw this. I saw it on uh, Cage Potato. They posted a video from like the local uh, CBS station in Las Vegas that did apparently a nearly 14-minute-long segment on UFC ring girl Ariane Celeste. 14 minutes? That's right. On, uh, a, on a local newscast? Yeah. Are we I'm, talking about a half-hour show? Because that would be like half of it. Yeah. Yeah, it would. Uh, but what was really crazy was the intro um, done by the, the reporter here who I'm going to say maybe – Maybe oversold Ariane Celeste and her importance to, I don't know, the world. Uh, for instance, the intro included lines such as, uh, she knew she was destined to be far more than just a model and she was determined to get there. For Ariane, there are no limits when it comes to reaching her goals and aspirations. Uh, 
She was made to knock down barriers and create opportunities. She's a perfect example of living life without limitations that you can do anything you put your mind to. Are you fucking wow. kidding me? You're talking about the girl who walks around in a bikini holding a sign above her head, right? We're, we're talking about the same Ariane Celeste? Because I'm confused. Because I don't see how being born with the genetics that make you conventionally attractive, then getting surgery to enhance that conventional attractiveness, then getting a job where you wear a bikini to work proves that you can do anything. Are you fucking kidding me with this? That, that read almost like Mad Libs. Yeah. Or something. No, it is. It's like PR Mad Libs. Like a, like a press release got bit by a radioactive spider. Uh, and then things just spiraled out of control from there. Or maybe the, the local news reporter didn't have a chance to write a new introduction, so she just used the same stuff she said about Maya Angelou like a, <laughs> a, the year previous. That could be. That could be. Uh, I'll just leave you. Ariane Celeste is a woman who leads by example and truly believes in herself and inspires so many others to do the same. That's what, that's what I would say she's doing is inspiring others to do the same Putting on a bikini to work? I don't know. Fucking kidding me. Well, there are as many as four jobs doing that <laughs> in the world that, that pay the kind of money that you, anyway. Ben, you know who has a podcast now who's moving in on the co-main event podcast territory? Who? Your old friend, Shale Sonnen. What? And, uh, this week, my are you fucking kidding me has to go out to all the people that wrote news stories and updates about Shale Sonnen going on his podcast and saying that he was not sorry that he used PEDs. Number one, because I thought the stuff that you said on a podcast just disappeared immediately, just vanished. Uh oh, it does from from like from society's view. And number two, I would kind of guess that Chael Sonnen has a podcast so that he can say outlandish stuff on it, and then people will write news stories about it, and therefore more people will listen to Chael Sonnen's podcast, and he can sell a sponsor to Monster Energy drinks or something like that. That sounds like a sound business plan. Where can I invest? All I'm saying is, are you fucking kidding me? If we're going to start treating the stuff that Chael Sonnen says on his podcast as news, I quit or something. I don't know. You don't quit. Well, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, some more, I suppose you would say, somewhat sobering news for the UFC and MMA fans this past week as the Sports Business Daily Journal, Sports Business Journal, uh, put the, the UFC on the cover uh, with a, a fairly lengthy feature story underneath the headline, Who Will Step Up for the UFC, uh, kind of lamenting the declining pay-per-view buys for the UFC. Uh and during 2014, and obviously this news came on the, the heels of last week's, uh, standard and pours, uh, downgrading the, the UFC's credit, uh, to the lowest level that it's been at since 2007, uh, and, uh, and reports earlier this month, uh, that the UFC had, uh, closed some of its Asian, uh, headquarters and, and parted ways with the, the, the executive that they had hired to, to, handle some of the its international expansion into Asia. Uh, and kind of one of the things notable to me about this report is that uh, the, the Sports Business Journal story actually quotes Lorenzo Fertitta uh, admitting that 2014 
was kind of a bummer year for the UFC, uh, which flies in the face of everything we've heard because normally the guy that we hear from just keeps shouting about how great everything is. Uh, but here's Lorenzo Fertitta's quote on the subject. He said, this year has been the most challenging year we've ever had. About 80% of the fights we wanted to put on got canceled for whatever reason. Injury, drug test, somebody had a baby, who knows? If it could happen, it happened in 2014. I can't wait to get to next year. Uh, and on that topic, the UFC, I guess, does have some really awesome fights booked uh, coming up kind of uh, right after we get done with Aldo Mendez 2, uh, UFC 179. Then we go with uh, the Cain Velasquez-Fabricio Verdum fight at UFC 180. Then Johnny Hendricks and Robbie Lawler rematch at UFC 181. Then we think we're going to get John Jones-Cormier at UFC 182. And then uh, January 31st, Anderson Silva returns against... Uh, Nick Diaz. So maybe there is some, some room for, uh, optimism that the, these pay-per-view buy rate slump things are going to kind of turn around. But, uh, I guess just to open up this round to you, Ben, I would ask, does it seem to you like 2015 is going to be a super important year for the UFC? Cause it kind of does to me. Yeah, it does. And it also, though, it makes me wonder if you're saying that the reason for why 2014 was bad was just because, a, you know, shit happens. Basically dudes got injured or somebody had a baby and people just weren't available to fight. Then how, like if that's what went wrong, then how can you guarantee that next year will be better? It's not like saying something like, I can't wait to get to 2015. And it's not like, you know, you flip the the first page on your new kittens riding fire trucks calendar and all the problems that you had in last year completely vanish. I mean, if dudes were getting injured in 2014, they could just as easily get injured in 2015. Right. And I think it, 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 you know, Nicholas Diaz could get himself another DUI between now and then. It, and we could have a problem. It begs for us to point out that the same damn thing happened in 2012, right? Yes. 2012 was that, the year of the injury before 2014 was the year of the injury. Exactly. That's that's another thing I was going to point out is that it seems like we've been kind of saying this for a while. And I, I'm, it's not that it's not true. Like it, it, he makes a, a valid point that that stuff. You know, we have seen a lot of fights either delayed or pretty much destroyed uh, by you know, something going wrong there, but. If that's kind of the nature of the business, then I don't know why you think it's necessarily going to be different just because you're in a new calendar year. But like you said, I mean, I think that one of the things that gives you hope when you look forward is not only do you have a bunch of like potentially huge drawing fights lined up like Jones Cormier or, or Hendricks Lawler and stuff is I think that you're starting to see a little bit more maybe of a return to like you look at the UFC 181 pay-per-view lineup and it's not just one where they're just trying to sell you on the main event like that one. Uh, and like we saw at UFC 178, where we seem to be at least moving back a little bit in the direction of creating a whole card for people to buy uh, and less of this experiment that the UFC has tried out recently where it puts a lot on the main event and then just figures the rest can be filler. And that's how you end up with one injury that makes you cancel a whole damn card. Yeah, and this Sports Business Journal story uh – has a has some uh, some pretty telling numbers and statistics in it. Uh, one of the ones that I liked uh, that one I wanted to point out here. They did a poll where they asked two thousand quote unquote senior level sports industry executives uh, spanning professional and college sports if the UFC were a stock, what would you do with it? Uh, the number one response: thirty nine percent said they would sell it. 
Uh, 31% said they would hold on to it, and only 12% uh, said that they would still buy into it at this point. Uh, whopping 18% said that they were not sure. Uh, so you have that. But I, I mean, wonder if the not sure from those people is, means that they don't know what the UFC is. That's probably true. But it, you know, it just paints a picture about how maybe in the last few years some of that momentum that the UFC had as as kind of the next big thing or the new kid on the block has kind of cooled off. Uh, they also noted that the UFC is, has broken a million pay-per-view by I believe they say seven times uh, in its history, but only once since 2006. Uh, so, you know, things things at least appear on the outside to be to be slowing down a little bit. But like we said, there's some uh, there's some room for optimism, I think, too. Uh, the UFC certainly respond. I don't know if they responded uh consciously to these reports but i did notice that after all of these reports kind of became public in the last couple of weeks you started to hear from a lot of big time ufc stars uh they had the press conference with anderson silva where he talks about his return fight with uh nick diaz uh george st pierre met with ufc president dana white and lorenzo fertito over stakes in montreal as we noted in the uh in the breakfast of champions this week, Ronda Rousey was out, uh, doing some spots on Fox and talking about her upcoming plans. Lo and behold, Conor McGregor decided that he's probably not going to wait for a title shot, but in fact wants to fight again as soon as he possibly can. Uh, so whether or not they did it intentionally, it did seem like, uh, a lot of the company's biggest stars came out of the woodwork to kind of remind us that they will be around again shortly. So, uh, you know, maybe there's some room to, to, well, let me say this. One way or another, I feel like 2015 will tell us, yes, this was all injuries and kind of bad luck. Or, you know, it'll it'll point out that maybe we are in sort of a like a decline or a, uh, a situation where uh, we, we've stagnated a little bit. Well, I mean, I think that it would be reasonable in a sport that's so dependent on individual stars for there to be some kind of ups and downs, some some highs and some lows there, that because that's just kind of how it goes. Like if you have a few big stars and either they retire or get hurt or just aren't available to fight as much or just don't have uh, the kinds of challengers that people really get excited about. Uh, you know, if you got a guy like John Jones and the best you can do for him is Glover Teixeira, then yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense that there's, that might be cause a little bit of a lull, but then it should come back up again when you get John Jones versus Daniel Cormier, right? I mean, I think that, that there is some reason to think that that'll happen. You know, you can't count on a hundred percent of these big fights that we're planning on happening. There's still always that chance that some stuff could go wrong there. But if those fights do happen, it's hard for me. I mean, we just saw John Jones and Daniel Cormier talking shit to each other on ESPN and then when the behind the scenes hey pussy are you there stuff came out then that was still a big deal I mean you still have those names out there and they're still young guys who are capable of of really making an impact and getting to that next level of where the people who don't usually think or talk about MMA are suddenly thinking and talking about it it's just a matter of how often can you do that and you know how reliably can you translate that to pay-per-view buys I think find it surprising you say that they've only broken a million pay-per-view buys once since 2006, which I I guess that would have to be UFC 100. Let me see if I can find that exact quote. Because that would also say that what they broke it six times before 2006, because that would surprise me as well. Yeah, it's possible I didn't nail those numbers. Let let me let me see if I can find it. I you know I think that. Uh, I agree with the logic that a lot of this decline has happened because they lost guys like Anderson Silva and George St. Pierre uh, uh, almost simultaneously. But I also think you have to look into like how the UFC has changed the way that it books those pay-per-views a little bit. Yes. We were talking about 
on the uh, on the G chat a couple weeks ago, we were talking about UFC 129 because I was looking at George St. Pierre's pay-per-view buys and how crazy they are. And UFC 129, when when George St. Pierre fought Jake Shields, uh, the 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 estimated pay-per-view buy is 800,000 at UFC 129 against Jake Shields. Uh, and you well, they kind of loaded that one up too, right? That was at the Toronto Arena, like the baseball stadium show. Yeah, and, and then you look at the card, and well, that card also had Jose Aldo against Mark Hominick, and oh yeah, three fights from the top of the card, right in the middle of the pay-per-view, uh, Lyoto Machida against Randy Couture. Okay. So that's probably going to do some buys, and it just feels like this year, especially, the UFC really got away from that style of booking, where there would be three or four really bona fide awesome fights on a pay-per-view and i hope that in 2015 we we see a return to that well it seems like and that's what is concerning to me about lorenzo fertitta's uh explanation for why things were 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 down and why they're going to be better any day now is because if you chalk it all up to just you know hey some stuff happened to us. We hit a bad run of bad luck. Then you take no responsibility for your own role in any of the, the business side of it. You know, I mean, then the UFC is perfectly willing to take credit when things are looking good. You know, they're the ones who saved the sport and turned it around and everything and, and made it a, a huge thing and world fucking domination and all that. But then as soon as you, you know, you have a bad year, it's like, Oh, well, what are you going to do? Some people got hurt. No one, no one's fault. Uh, and not, you know, there is some element of agency here in how the UFC has changed its approach. And it seems like a lot of us have been saying it for a long time. Like you're doing so many shows that these fights that you would have had where like, Hey, Michael Bisping versus Kung Lee, there's an awesome third fight on a pay-per-view or, you know, these days where you have two events in one day where you could have just one really awesome event on cable TV that would get a bunch of people to watch. I mean, there are definitely business practice things that they're doing that I'm sure they feel like are making them more money in just total TV revenue all across the globe. But it is causing like a, a decline in general interest, I think, among a lot of fans in North America. I and mean, how many times... I heard recently from people who were saying, you know, this used to be a big part of my life and something I was really into, and I just kind of, I just drifted away from it little by little, and you get far enough away, and then the gravity of these big fights like Jones, Cormier, or Hendricks, Lawler, you know, you've drifted too far to where either you don't even hear about it or you don't care enough, it, it, it loses its power to pull you back in. Here's the, the paragraph from the Sports Business Journal story. The UFC has broken one million buys seven times in its history, but only once since 2006. It has broken 700,000 buys in that span 19 times, but only twice in the last two years. Uh, but I guess we should point out that this, this article also does go into the uh, – the UFC's kind of shifting model for revenue and how it's making a lot more money now from deals with Fox and TV deals in Brazil, TV deals in Mexico. So that's good news for the uh, promotion. I don't necessarily know if it's great news for us as yeah. fans, but uh, you know, well, the, the sky is not necessarily falling uh, just because these pay-per-view numbers are down. We should, we should point that out. Yeah. Also. Well, and, but I mean, I think it also thing to point out is like they're making good money from the Fox deal, but you got the Fox deal by being the UFC of two, 2010 and, and, and 2011. I mean, it, you got it from those years. You didn't get it from uh, what the product has kind of turned into in the last year or two. Like that's, that's something that's important to remember is, you know, dance with who brung you there. And, and I think that that's the way they got Fox's attention. The way they proved that they're a really good value is because of those cards when they used to load it up. And, and that was what made it really different from boxing was that you weren't just going to watch a main event that you cared about everybody on the main card and you knew who everybody on the main card was and what they were fighting for. 
Yeah, and one of the other inter- interesting things in this article, maybe we can close on this, then we'll do just saying stuff. Lorenzo Fertitta actually admits in this article that he doesn't feel like they did a very good job with what he calls, quote-unquote, segmentation of the product. Uh, when they first got the Fox deal, uh, you know, they didn't do a very good job deciding what would be on pay-per-view, what would be on Fox, what would be on Fox Sports 1, et cetera, et cetera. He says, it's about segmentation of the product, and quite honestly, I don't think we did a good job of it when we went into the deal with Fox. We didn't take a deep breath and say, okay, how are we going to do this. It wasn't until two or three months later when we said, we got to think about this differently. We had to segment the product and the pa- and package it differently, uh, which again is is different from what we hear a lot yes, of the time very different. from the from Dana White, the guy that the that the UFC has on point most of the time. So I mean, like you hear Lorenzo Fertitta say stuff like that, and it feels like, okay, you know, maybe they're doing more behind the scenes to address the problems that we see. And, and for that reason, I feel like maybe there's some hope for 2015 that we'll get back to something closer to the model that we had uh, in the years when the UFC was really awesome. Yeah, I hope so. That's the most encouraging part I've heard yet. So let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, uh, owing, I guess, to his new role as Bellator MMA brand ambassador, Hoist Gracie's got to pop back up again and give his opinion on what he thinks people are doing wrong in MMA in the year 2014, as if he has any real relation to it anymore. I'm just saying we got to stop even asking him these questions because you know how he's going to say some stuff where he acts like he's still a, you know, a really active participant in MMA on some level and he's not. And he's going to tell you what he would have done when really what he would have done is fight a dude who was like a strip mall karate teacher uh, and who had never seen jujitsu before. And that's how he would have looked awesome. I'm just saying, Hoist Gracie, you were awesome in your time and you get that kind of pioneer feather to stick in your cap. Stop talking about MMA in 2014, man, because the shit has passed you by. You do not know what you're talking about as much as you act like you do. Just saying. Just wow. Just saying. Bellator's Hoist Gracie. Uh, ben, this week I'm just saying, you know and I know that Mike Goldberg fucked up on his NFL on Fox uh, tour of duty. Uh, the MMA community at large knows it. Mike Goldberg knows it. Mm-hmm. He's been raked over the coals by the media. He's been uh, both MMA and national. We made some mock of him during the uh, Breakfast of Champions last week. At this point, man, I'm just saying maybe we should all just let Mike Goldberg deal with his disgrace in private. I feel like we need to cut the guy a little bit of slack at this point, not only because I feel like we've made our point, but there's also a small part of me that feels like the Mike Goldberg getting fired from his football gig kind of empowers the trolls. And I don't really like that. I realize if you work for a company like Fox, you got to be careful about what you say on the social medias. But also, if somebody comes at you on Twitter and tells you you did a fucking bad job, I don't necessarily think you're way outside what's right and what's wrong to tell that guy to go fuck himself. I'm just saying. Expressing a rare moment of empathy is Chad Dundas. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 179. As for right now, though, we're done. We're through. We are out. You know, the next time when you tell me that uh, you were mad because I didn't respond to your emails about listener mail fuck off is what you're going to get. You basically just told me to do it. You basically told me it was okay. Um, I would hope to blame. I would hope that our interpersonal conversations done at the dining room table in my, in my house are somewhat different than...